God bless you and good morning, Madison Church. It's so great to be with you. Uh, I love and appreciate Stephen. And uh, I've been longing to come to be with you. And uh, of course, with the COVID crisis, uh, this is the best that we could do right now. Um, COVID-19 is a serious pandemic, and I'm going to talk about it uh, from the aspect of race in just a minute. But I want to just uh, kind of introduce uh, this message with something a little bit humorous. Uh, someone asked, what does COVID, what does the 19 stand for at the end of COVID? And I found the answer. It's the 19 pounds that you gain during the pandemic because of the stay-at-home order. Uh, but no, seriously, uh, there is a remedy for that as well as a remedy for uh, the issue of racism. The remedy for the, the, remedy for the 19 pounds is, uh, is walking, is exercising. My wife and I, we are avid walkers. We try to average about 10,000 steps uh, every other day, which is equivalent of about five miles. And uh, they say that if you, if you have that type of, of pace of walking, that uh, it will reduce your glucose level, it will uh, increase your heart rate, and overall you live a, a much healthier life. Uh, many people are applying that principle to their lives. They are parking their cars in the parking lot at work further distance away from the entrance so that they, uh, they can walk uh, further. They're parking their cars away from the mall entrances. They're taking the, the stairs instead of the elevator. Those type of things are certainly helping them to get their steps in. But if you, like me, have become a follower of Jesus Christ, then you know that our experience with Christ is a walk. It's a journey. It's an adventure. Jesus invited his disciples on a journey in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, and he said, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And from that point on, Jesus began to take these 12 men with him on a walk and a call to discipleship. He began the journey, and it was not a leisurely walk. It was not a sightseeing tour, and certainly it was not a sprint, but it was a walk and an invitation to become like him, a walk to think like him, a walk to see things and people the way that he sees them, a walk to feel emotionally the way that he feels, to love what he loves, and certainly to do the things that came out of his heart as well. I want to talk about the topic of grace and race, but the subtopic is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. It's impossible to walk with Jesus and not experience great awakening. It's impossible to be on a journey with Jesus for any period of time and not have your heart awakened to the things that are resonating with his heart. In the Western world and in America, we need to enter into a new walk. We need to enter into a new mindset, a new set of emotions. And I believe that God is literally taking us in the Western world and in the church and regardless of our ethnicity, he's taking us on a journey where we have to walk and come face to face with systemic injustice, uh, with racial inequities, with racism at its core. And we have to confront these things. Every day on our walk, we're going to see the differences and the disparities as it comes to race. Uh, Brian Stevenson, who is the uh, the author of the, of the book and the movie, Just Mercy, and he's the director of the uh, Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, he is a, a Harvard-trained lawyer and uh, has been representing prisoners on death row for years. Uh, he talked about the narrative of racial difference 
And this narrative is part of our walk. We, we cannot deny the narrative. We, can, we cannot be silent. We cannot cover up our ears and refuse to enter into this dialogue. This narrative is that in the United States, the cr- criminal justice system is unique and different from almost any other nation in the world. The United States represents just 5% of the world's population, but yet we incarcerate 25% of all the inmates on the face of the earth. There's something wrong in America. And also when we consider that the vast majority of those inmates, they're black and brown people like me. One out of three black men is in jail, on probation, or on parole. And when you think about our own state, the state of Wisconsin, our state leads the nation in incarceration. There is a crisis of mass incarceration, which Michelle Alexander says is the new Jim Crow. It's a new form of slavery. The walk with Jesus Christ is going to take us into the narrative of racial difference. And it's this narrative that is the reason why we are experiencing the the wave of racial unrest. It's a response to the the, uh, deaths of people like George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, Elijah McClain, and so many others. This narrative which has denied blacks the opportunity to live where they wanted to live, to receive the quality of education that everyone should be afforded in America. I recognize that even when we talk about race and we talk about the the differences uh, in ethnicities, that sometimes that emotions can rise up because it's a very sensitive subject. Daniel Hill in his book, Wide Awake, He says that that emotion that you experience in that moment, it's a disorientation. And what that means is that uh, you are being challenged to think about yourself in terms of your whiteness. And the majority really don't have to think about themselves in that way. Uh, White people don't introduce their friend. This is my white friend, Jim. This is my white friend, Sally. No, but when you introduce somebody else in conversation, you may say, you know, my friend, John, the black guy I work with. And so now when we come face to face with the sin of racism in this, in this walk with Jesus, we are forced to, to see the color lines that we have created in society. And it creates a disorientation. It challenges a sense of identity. It challenges the notion of whiteness. So I want you to stay with me on this walk for a few more minutes as we talk about grace and race while we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Oftentimes when we talk about race, one of the first questions that is asked, well, what do you want me to do? What can I do to help? What's the solution? How do we solve this problem? That's a good question. But I believe we need to just pump our brakes and pause for a moment, but because before we do something, we have to see something. And before we see something, we have to be something. In fact, the Bible tells us who we are. It says that as believers in Christ, that we already are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are a city set upon a hill. We don't have to try to be salty. We don't have to try to be light. We already are that. 
And so what the church must do, what believers in Christ must do, is that we simply must, must shake off our partisanship and shake off our allegiance to whiteness or blackness or, 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 or any other uh, allegiance and loyalty other than to the grace of Jesus Christ, the fact that he has saved us and he has placed us in his family. And so we are the children of God. So first of all, we just have to be that and the world will see if we are just being that. And then we need to see. What do we need to see before we do? Well, I want to take you to a scripture in Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. When Jesus and his disciples, the scripture says, when they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, then they begged him to touch the man and to heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and he asked, can you see anything now? The man looked around. He said, yes, I see people but I can't see them clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened and his sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. I want to make a, an application of this text to the discussion that we're having on grace and race. And what do you see? The, the friends of this man recognized that he had a problem. And I think when it comes to the issue of race, one of the first things we have to rely upon, we got to have some good friends. You cannot self-diagnose yourself as having a racial problem, nor can you self-treat. You need somebody who you can trust, a wounded healer, if you will, somebody who has experienced the brokenness and the pain and the effects and the infection of racism who can help bring you up and out of that. And that's what these friends did. Our friend is blind and we need to take him to Jesus. They brought him to Jesus and Jesus then took the man as even a more skillful healer, a more skillful leader, and he guided him from his friends to an isolated place, which means that if you're blind, now you're not only trusting your friends, but you're trusting another level of friendship to guide you and take you to a place that you don't know how to get on your own. Jesus took the man out of his comfort zone. He took him to an isolated place. And when he was there, Jesus created a spitball in his mouth, spit on the ground, made mud out of the dirt and the spit, rubbed it on the man's eyes and asked him the question, what do you see? The amazing thing about God, the amazing thing about Jesus is that whenever he asks us a question in scripture, he's not asking us a question because he lacks information, but he's asking us a question because he's trying to teach us a greater revelation. When he asked Adam the question, Adam, where are you? Come on, you think God didn't know Adam and Eve were hiding in the bushes? He knew that. It wasn't because he lacked information, but he wanted Adam to know the revelation that you are not in the place of glory, in the place of relationship that you should be. When he asked Elijah in the cave, why are you in this cave? He knew that Elijah was depressed and fearful, but he was trying to get Elijah to see that there was more that God wanted to do in his life. And when Jesus asked the man the question, what do you see? He knew the condition of the man's eyes, but he wanted the man to acknowledge his need, acknowledge his condition. And the man said, Lord, if I can paraphrase, he says, I can see a little clearer now before as in total blindness, I had nothing but darkness. But now that you've touched my eyes in a very uncomfortable way, in a very uncomfortable place, at least now I can see shadows and I can see a little bit of light 
and the men look like trees. And then Jesus does something for the man. He touches him a second time. And then he says to the man, now what do you see? And the man says, I can see clearly. I want to submit to you that the sin of racism, which is our nation's original sin, it infects and it affects all of us, regardless of whether you're black, white, red, yellow, or brown. And we need multiple touches every day in order to see clearly, to see the way that God sees, in order to feel the way that he feels, in order, uh, in order to treat people the way that he would treat them. Every day we ingest within our lives, within our souls, the effects. The air we breathe is just saturated with racism. It is, it, is, it is like the dust particles of a nuclear bomb that has just come to rest on every fabric of society. And so when you walk out of your door and you enter into the transit system, you're experiencing the effects of racism. Uh, when you go into the schools, whichever school you go to, you're encountering the effects of racism. When you go to do your banking or, 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 or when you're pulled over on the side of the road by a, a traffic cop, you're, you're dealing with the effects, the effects of racism. We're dealing with two viruses in our nation, two pandemics, the pandemic of corona, but also the pandemic of racism that has really been saturating the air of our society for the last 400 years. It's in the air we breathe. It's endemic. And so we need multiple touches of God to clear our lungs, to clear our souls from this effect of sin. In John chapter 4, Jesus takes his disciples again on the journey. And we're following the footsteps of Jesus. So Jesus takes his disciples to the town of Samaria. He intentionally and he radically walked directly to Samaria. Why is that significant? It's significant because the Samaritans were considered a mixed race, half-breeds, mongrels, if you will, mutts, half-Jewish and half-Assyrian and other ethnicities. And the, and the town of Samaria was smack dab in the middle of Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. And so every God-fearing Jew would go around Samaria on the way to Galilee or from Galilee to Judea. But Jesus takes his disciples on their walk, on their journey. It's a journey of awakening. He takes them right to the city of Samaria. Why did he do that? He did it because the issue of race is one that the church has been going around for 400 years. We've been going around the issue of race on the issue of slavery. We've been going around the issue of race uh, during the Reconstruction years in our history, during the years of Jim Crow, during the, the, the times and seasons of, of, of the KKK and, and terroristic lynchings of black and brown people. We were going around Samaria when Native American land was seized, when Asians were interned in camps. We were going around Samaria during the civil rights struggle. And here we are again, once again, coming face to face with the narrative of racial difference on the wake of the, the, the death of George Floyd and so many others. And the question is, what will Christian leaders do? Come on, the climate is hot right now. Uh, the, the waves of protest are happening all over the world, not just in America. And, and Christian leaders in many churches are choosing to be silent. And they're doing that because they're making a pragmatic decision. 
that if I remain silent, I will not lose the masses of people who are loyal to the faith, who are loyal to this church, who are helping to pay the bills, my salary, who are helping to me to fulfill what I believe is the mission and the call of this church. It's a pragmatic decision. It's, it's, a, it's a decision for many that is the, it's, it's the easy road. It's not the road less traveled, but it's the road that's often traveled. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't take the road that's easy. He goes right through Samaria and he takes his disciples with him. He was heading to Cana of Galilee for the wedding in which he turned the water into wine. That's another sermon. Maybe Stephen will have me back to, to preach that. But right now, on his way to Cana of Galilee from Judea, he chooses not to go around, but instead he goes right through Samaria. He stepped over the question of pragmatism and he walked right into a confrontation of the narrative of racial difference. And I believe that's what Jesus wants you and I to do. He wants us, us to encounter people like the woman that he met at the well. And like he did, he wants us to skillfully and masterfully and humbly and with transparency and authenticity to break down color, racial, gender, ethnic barriers that have been erected for centuries, just like it was between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus walked and he moved according to the will of the Father. So much so when the disciples who had gone into town to buy food, you can imagine how uncomfortable they must have been at the local grocery store or the local market. These Jews, like, why did Jesus bring us to this market? Certainly, we, there were better markets in Judea, or we could have waited till we got to Galilee, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an uncomfortable place to be in right now. While they were going into town to buy food, and Jesus was encountering this woman, and bringing her to a, to a place of, of love. And he's really just saying, listen, God hears you, God sees you, and God values you. It's really the same message that we're hearing globally and nationally right, right now. And it should be a message coming from the lips of the church, and often it's not, but it's the message that says, Black Lives Matter. Years ago, I asked a, a friend of mine who's a pastor in the city of Milwaukee. He, he often also happens to be uh, Anglo, white. I said, Matt, what do you hear when you hear the term Black Lives Matter? And why are white people so defensive and offended by the term Black Lives Matter? His response is that maybe they are tuned more into the, uh, the organizational movement of Black Lives Matter, more so than uh, the message of Black Lives Matter, and it creates a resistance. I said, I, I can hear that, and I can appreciate that. And he asked me the question, well, Walter, what do you hear? when you hear Black Lives Matter. And I said to him, I hear the sound of the burning embers of a cross on the front line of a sharecropper's home in the South who's being intimidated. I hear those flames crackling in the middle of the night. I hear the windows breaking as rocks are thrown into a home to terrorize. I hear the screams of four little girls in the basement of a church in Alabama. I hear the, the creaking of a tree branch that's breaking and bending under the weight of a black man who is being lynched. I hear George Floyd saying, I can't breathe. That's what I hear. And, and, and if there is any place where we ought to be hearing and delivering the message that you matter, you value, I see you, I hear you, it should be in the church. 
So may God help us to realize that grace trumps race. That's right. Grace trumps race because grace is God's undeserved, unmerited kindness and favor that all of us need, regardless of our ethnicity, our age, our gender. Where would we be without the grace of God? None of us would be saved. None of us would be healed. None of us would be alive today or be kept in the position that we are. But race is something that was designed and constructed by mankind to economize and to profit off of the free labor of African people in America. Race is something that was created uh, to, to create a group that we call white and a group we call black, or a group we call savage Native Americans, or a group we call Asians or Latinos. I remember in my freshman year of college that I became awakened to this social construct of race. I was sitting in my uh, introduction to theology class that was taught by a Jewish rabbi. I'm at a Catholic Jesuit university in Milwaukee, Marquette University. I'm one of two African-Americans sitting in the front row of the class. All of the students behind me are white, males and females. The professor happens to be Jewish, and he's trying to make a point about the ethnicity and the background and the culture of the days in which Jesus lived. And he makes a statement, and he says, Jesus was probably darker skinned than you, and he points at me. Now, I'm sitting in the front row. My first emotion was one of embarrassment. And the reason that it was an emotion of embarrassment was because all of the images that I had received in life prior to that moment that defined beauty, that defined intelligence, that defined value and worth and things that mattered, they were European. The images, even the images of Jesus or the images of the father or the images of the mother of Jesus or the disciples or the, the images of Moses and Noah and, and Adam, they were all European features. But the, the emotion of embarrassment soon gave way to curiosity, and the curiosity caused me to go back to Scripture. I was a new believer at the time, and as, as, as new believers often do, we, when reading the Bible, we start at the beginning. So I turned to the book of Genesis, and I read about, in the beginning, God creating the heavens and the earth, and came to know God to be a Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and when I got to chapter 2, and I saw how after God made man, male and female, in his image, and we were spirit, we needed a body in order to manifest and dominate in the earth. God formed a body for the man out of the dust of the ground. And then he breathed into the nostrils of that man, that dirt man, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And in my mind, not being a rocket scientist or a theologian at the time, I began to imagine that if God made man from the dust of the ground, unless God made him from sand, he's probably not Anglo. He's probably brown or red like me. And then I looked further in the definition of the name Adam, and I saw where the name means red mud. I've been to Africa seven different times. My parents are from Mississippi and from Georgia, and I've traveled to those southern states numerous times. And if you have been to either of those places, you know that the dirt, the ground, is brownish red. I said, wow. Maybe that's the color that Adam was because my parents have five children and all five of us have a different hue of skin. It's literally impossible for two Anglos 
to, uh, to have children and for them to have dark skin like me unless somebody's been creeping under the, under the fence, if you know what I mean. I don't know if children would be watching this, so just use your imagination. You, I think you understand. I began to turn a little bit uh, more and go deeper into Genesis chapter 6, and I read about Noah and his three sons, and when they came out of the ark, how they repopulated the whole earth of, of humanity, which had been destroyed by the flood. Noah had three sons. He had Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The name Shem means olive-colored, and Shem was the father of the Semitic people. In fact, the word Shem is another word for Sem or Semitic. The name Japheth means fair or light. And so Japheth, if you do the, read the scripture, was the ancestor and the father of European nations, those that migrated there from Babylonia area to the, to the west and to the islands of Europe. The name Ham means black or dark. And so it, 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 it says in scripture that, that Ham became the father of, of Put and Canaan and, and Miseram. And these are nations of Libya and Ethiopia. And of course, the Canaan land, which eventually the Israelites possessed then and still now. And so my mind moved from embarrassment to curiosity to a sense of pride. And I'm not sharing any of this out of a sense of pride over my race, but more so to let you know that grace trumps race. I have more loyalty and allegiance to the grace of God than to race because race is a man-made social construct. Not only does grace trump race, but relationship trumps religion and rules. And this is a message that Jesus wanted his disciples to grasp. And so every day on his journey, on his walk with them, he was trying to help them to understand this. That's why he had to go to Samaria, because there was a woman at the well who was there. Now, when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, she did what many of us often do when we're confronted with the topic of race. We want to debate and we want to argue. She wanted to argue religious stuff, and Jesus just dispelled all of her arguments and brought her to the realization that, that she was standing in front of the one who was the Messiah that she was standing in the front of the one who could give her water of which she would never thirst again in her soul. Today, many times when we're dealing with the topic of race, we argue not because we want solutions and answers, but we want to maintain our comfort. We want to maintain our, our mindset. We, we really don't want to change. There are many people that are arguing today about the Black Lives Matters movement. And, and certainly I recognize that as an organization, Black Lives Matter, and it's clearly stated on their website, uh, has Marxist foundations, uh, has, has atheistic leanings, have uh, 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 loyalties and allegiance to agendas that include the LGBTQ community. And I don't believe that everybody that is marching and saying Black Lives Matters cares about the organization. The organization does not, does not have a corner on the statement that black lives matter. In fact, God was the first one who declares that black lives matter. All lives matter. Yeah, we hear that. But all lives don't matter until black lives matter. Just imagine yourself living on a block and wake up in the middle of the night and your house is on fire. And you call 911 and, and the fire trucks 
zip down the street. Their sirens and horns are going off. So everybody in the neighborhood wakes up. They come out on their front lawn and the fire truck sees your house on fire. But your neighbor who is white says, wait, stop, stop. All houses matter on this block. Why don't you stop and have a cup of coffee at my house? I matter. My house matters. I think you see the irony in that. The only house that matters at that time is the house that's burning. And for the last 400 years, black houses, black lives have been burning. So when we stand up and say black lives matter, we're not saying that the other houses on the block don't matter. We're saying that right now, this is the one that needs the attention. And we as the people of God should be the one giving voice, giving message, and leading in mission towards that. So some of us, we argue about that, and I believe that it, it, it's because there are three blind spots that we often have in the church, particularly my white Anglo brothers and sisters that are in the church. The first blind spot, I call it the paralysis of perfection. The paralysis of perfection is, is sometimes will cause you to, to argue and debate about the organization of Black Lives Matter as opposed to the, the true statement and the value that Black Lives Matter. It, it will cause you sometimes to, to point the finger at black-on-black -black crime. And once black-on-black -black crime is solved, once you people solve your own issues, then maybe we can be concerned about what's happening in the inner city. That's the paralysis of perfection. It, it's, the, it's the tendency to point out the character flaws or the failings of certain leaders, such as Dr. Martin Luther King, who was, who was rumored to have had an extramarital affair the night before he was assassinated and rumored that that wasn't even the first time. It, it's this paralysis of perfection that until I see something that is truly perfect, I won't come out of my comfort zone. I won't truly care. I won't give my voice. I won't give my vote. I won't give my vision to it. So I think the people who are out there are not trying to lend credence to the organization. They're simply saying what God has already said, that black lives do matter. There's a second blind spot that I believe that many of my Anglo brothers and sisters are prone to. The first one is the paralysis of perfection. The second one is the curse of colonialism. It's the curse of colonialism. Colonialism is all about national power, control, and economic profitability at all costs. Colonialism values things more than people. It values possessions and properties and land at the, at the expense of the people who previously owned them. And if you were to ask the Native Americans if I'm right, they would say yes. They would say yes. They were the first nation people on this land. But today, they, they are the smallest percentage of any ethnic group in America today. If you were to ask uh, Africans who were taken from their lands in Africa and brought to America or who uh, were colonized by British nations, they would say that this curse of colonialism uh, has been a deadly thing for us. Recently, I was watching a documentary called The Stone Ghosts of the South. And it's a documentary that's investigating this debate about Confederate flags and the Confederate statues that are all around the South and, and the Northeast. There was a white man who was on the side of defending the flags and the statues, and he was interviewed, and he said, well, 
the white man said, well, this is part of our heritage. This is part of our history. We are proud of this. And the interviewer asked him the question and says, well, what do you get out of the statues and the flags? He said, well, these are some of our heroes. He says, well, what do you think black people or Native Americans get out of it? In fact, what was the benefit of slavery for black people? And the white man said, well, they're here in the greatest land, the greatest nation on the face of the earth. Oh, really? That's the benefit for us? 400 years of free labor, still today living in, in vast poverty, still dealing with the narrative of racial difference, and we should be proud that we're here. It's the curse of colonialism that is a blind spot. Let me, let me talk about the last blind spot. It's the ideology of individualism. Song Chan Rao is the author of a book called The Next Evangelicalism. And in this, he deals with this ideology of individualism. He calls it the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And if you were to do an investigation of the history of our nation, and even how culture has infiltrated our church, and culture has become an idol within our nation, our nation and even within our churches, our worship songs reflect us more than they do God. Our sermons are critiqued as to how I feel about them and how the, the pastor made me feel and how he spoke to my needs. Many pastors leave churches on Sunday afternoon and wake up on Monday morning feeling like total failures, that they did not meet all the needs of the people in their congregations. Why? Because the focus is on individuals and not on community. This translates into an emphasis on personal salvation, on the Great Commission, more so than on community shalom and the Great Commandment. It's, it's the ideology of individualism. And, and, and when you have this condition, this blind spot, it insulates you from the ability to be sensitive to systemic racism, and instead you focus on your own individual experience with race. So even in the conversation of the narrative of racial difference, if you, are, if you have the blind spot of individualism, you'll begin to say, well, I never owned slaves. I never told a racial joke that was insensitive. I have a black friend, and you're focused on your individual experience, and it, it inoculates you and makes you immune and insensitive from seeing the community experience, the national experience, the historic experience of the impact of racism on an entire ethnicity of people. It's oftentimes people who say all lives matter are saying that out of a sense of individualism. Don't forget that my life matters while you're talking about black lives mattering. This sin of racism, it's the number one issue that's affecting and hindering the mission of the church in America today. The vision and the heart of Jesus Christ is that he has a church on earth that looks like the church in heaven. And Revelation chapter 7 and 9 tells us that from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, we are to be standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, Jesus Christ.
That's the vision and the heart of God. So the solution for the church is to be, to be the body of Christ, where there is neither male nor free, Jew nor Greek, black, red, white, or yellow. We should not want to be identified by color. I'll close with this story. Eight years ago, Trevon Martin was killed in Sanford, Florida by George Zimmerman. And George Zimmerman went through a series of trials. And on the day in which he was acquitted, all charges were dropped. He was deemed to be innocent and free by a grand jury. My granddaughter, who was seven years old at the time, she and I were sitting at the kitchen counter and we were waiting for my wife to fix us an afternoon snack. And the news was on as we were sitting there and the announcer, uh, uh, the newscaster came on and said, George Zimmerman has been acquitted of all charges of the murder of Trevon Martin. My seven-year-old granddaughter looked up at me and said, Grandpa, I don't want to be black. That's a very profound statement from a child. It's profound on a couple of fronts. Number one, it's profound because she was saying that, Grandpa, if I'm not black and in America, I have a better chance, number one, of living. I have a better chance of accomplishing my dreams. I have a better chance of going to the school of my choice, getting the type of job I want, living in the neighborhood that I want to live in, marrying somebody of, that I may have a larger pool to pick from, not being profiled as I walk through the, through the department store, not being uh, pulled over while I'm driving because of the color of my skin, uh, not being threatened as I'm bird watching in a park. She's saying, I don't want to be black. And as a, as a father and a grandfather, my paternalistic instincts kicked in and I knew right away that I had to try to rescue her soul. I tried to ha had to try to redeem her from this, this tidal wave of race that was pulling her down, that pulls all of us down. It infects and affects all of us, not just white people, but it affects blacks as well. And I had to, I had to help rescue her hopes and her dreams and remind her that she's not black, that blackness and whiteness, that race is a creation and a construction of man to justify slavery and to put a, a class of people together who are called white, who would benefit and profit off of that whiteness through no merit of their own, simply because of the color of their skin. I had to help her to realize that. That no, I don't want to be black either, Autumn. You shouldn't want to be white. You shouldn't want to be black. You shouldn't want to be red. Because God, he looks at us and he sees every tribe, every nation, every people group, every language. He sees ethnicities. He sent us to go into the nations and to not just be concerned about the great commission, but also the great commandment. So may God help us. May we take his hand like the disciples, and may we follow in his footsteps because he's going to take us on a journey where we come face to face with the narrative of racial difference. And the end result is that he wants us to have more loyalty and allegiance to grace than to race. Let's pray.